This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I was really happy to find that there was a Gibbon here. and very sad to know that he's the last one. We chase for convenience at a cost, and the cost is exactly this. Once he goes, that's it, this jungle will be quiet. Gibbons live in a small family unit. They protect each other. They have really strong bonding, same like human. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Miles Story is a wildlife filmmaker who has worked on productions with the BBC, World Animal Protection, Roots and Shoots Malaysia, among others. Keen to tell stories that can impact our relationship with nature, Miles produced and directed Finding Solo, a 30-minute documentary about the last white-handed gibbon in Bukit Serdang, and he was also the wildlife videographer and director of the documentary Wang Kalian, The Forgotten Valley. So Miles is on the line with me now. He's going to share more about his work. We're also going to discuss how wildlife filmmaking can be a powerful tool for wildlife conservation. Welcome, Miles. How are you today? Hi, Juliet. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to, to talk about wildlife films and some of the stuff that I've made in Malaysia. Yeah, excited to talk to you. So, Miles, uh, first of all, uh, I just have to say congratulations because I heard that, you know, uh, I think it was just last week or just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Finding Solo was the winner for uh, in the RTS Student Television Awards 2023. You received the award for postgraduate craft skills camera work. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yes, that was that was a very honourable award, actually, um, because that's a national award um, here in the UK. Um, so you're competing against all uh, postgraduate students across the UK in different categories. And I think the judges could see um, that with such a small budget and such a small crew and using a local crew in Malaysia, um, how um, how good the, the, the sort of the end product and the camera work was. And that's kind of why the award was given for the film. Excellent. Well, congratulations. And we're going to talk about the film uh, in, a, in a little bit. But, you know, first, I guess, you know, I just want to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Can you talk to me about, um, I guess, what sparked your love for nature and wildlife? Sure. Um, so I think it was probably a combination of things that sparked my interest in wildlife. But I grew up in Sabah in Borneo, um, where, of course, there's wildlife everywhere kind of at your doorstep. Um, but it was also just the television shows that I used to watch as as a kid was mostly National Geographic, National Ge- Geographic Wild, um, Animal Planet. Some of my favorite shows were on there. And I think that really sparked an interest in me early on. Um, but one of my most memorable experiences was probably visiting the Kinabatangan River and actually seeing firsthand some of our wildlife that we have. You know, I saw pygmy elephants, um, orangutans in the wild for the first time, proboscis monkeys, um, crocodiles, uh, wild boars, um, and all different sorts of primates and birds and hornbills. And for me, as a 14-year-old, that really opened up my eyes and was like, wow, this is this is something that I really want to dedicate my life to. Okay. And I was lucky enough to have very supportive parents that allowed me to, to pursue that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how it sort of all began. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? You know, um, you, you never know what it is. You're just kind of watching television, but you never quite know the impact it's going to have. I mean, look how it has, um, yeah, look how it has impacted your decisions in pursuing your career and, you know, pursuing what you wanted to study because you did uh, choose to pursue both zoology and also filmmaking, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, that was the the big question was when, when I finished high school was what, how do I get into sort of wildlife filmmaking? And there's not... A, there's no one direct path into this into this industry, mm-hmm. um, but having done a lot of science at school, I thought it would make more sense to go down the science path instead of the filmmaking path, and that's why I chose to do zoology, uh, the study of animals, basically. And I did that in America. I finished my degree in zoology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and that was another whole new experience. Come, um, going from Sabah to America was another eye-opener into different career paths, different options, and I thought about going into maybe more research, like wildlife research, and potentially doing uh, more academic studies into into conservation and stuff like that. Um, but I was lucky enough to find a course in Bristol in the United Kingdom, which offered a master's in wildlife filmmaking, which I didn't think even existed um, because it's such a niche topic. Mm. Um, and I was lucky enough to get chosen for that course. And now I'm living in Bristol, kind of where the wildlife industry um lives all the production companies that you see on television are basically based in bristol um, even the ones that are commissioned for nat geo are normally made in bristol um, so yeah it's a good good place to be at this time in in my career Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, that that knowledge that you uh, gathered, you know, from your zoology background, I mean, has that also, you know, really helped? Has that also been important uh, in your own filmmaking? Yes, definitely. Um, firstly, I think the zoology has played a role in sort of just having a general basic understanding of wildlife, because when you're shooting wildlife, you have to understand your topic, your subject. If not, it's 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 really hard just to find them, to track them down, to know their behavior even to just to know behavior that's interesting to to most people to film. Mm. Because when you're telling stories through film, you always have to think what looks visually good on camera and what kind of behaviors is possible to film. Um, so having that sort of academic, that sort of science background really helped. And that's what a lot of people look for um, what in people who, who do wildlife film is their, their scientific background, not just their filmmaking skills, mm-hmm. especially in wildlife. So, yeah. But it needs that marriage, isn't it? Because, yeah, you have to tell a compelling story. Yeah, if you have the science background, but you can't tell the compelling story, people aren't also going to be interested or going to watch it, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, that's why I think it's such a fun a fun thing to do in my eyes, because it's two things that I really enjoy, which is the study of animals and that sort of scientific aspect and always breaking boundaries and, and seeing what behaviors we have never seen before uh, in wildlife that helps us care more about wildlife and hopefully protect them. And at the same time, you get to be really creative on the filmmaking side and you get to play around with different camera angles, different choice of music, um, voices, uh, you know, different kinds of special effects, if, if, if that's the style that you're going for. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's a combination of things that I really like being creative and also being quite uh, sciencey at the same time. Yeah. And you, as you mentioned, you're in Bristol, which, as you said, is the place to be, right? If you want to be a wildlife filmmaker. Talk to me about how you began your career. Well, that was sort of it was the move to Bristol is where my career in wildlife filmmaking sort of began. And it started with this master's that I completed in wildlife filmmaking, which was in partnership with the BBC. So the BBC kind of are the gold standard for wildlife filmmaking and have been for so many years. 
And they co-designed this course with the University of the West of England in Bristol um, to sort of help that next generation of wildlife filmmakers. And that was a real that was an eye-opener for me because coming from a zoology background and having done filmmaking at the same time, um, just the combination of the two and the whole learning about the whole industry, how it works, different roles within the industry, um, for me was stuff that I never knew. And also um, how we tell stories about nature and wildlife is also something that I learned. How do you tell a story? Um, how do you show a sequence of maybe a predator-prey interaction or something giving birth or something dying? How do you tell that on visually on film? How do you capture that? And that's kind of where my journey began. And so my final project for this master's was the film that I shot back in Malaysia, which was Finding Solo. So I went back to Malaysia and shot for a couple of months in Kuala Lumpur and finished that film about the lone gibbon in Bukit Serdang. And that's kind of how it began. And a lot of people, I think, resonated with that film, had seen that film. And one thing led to another. I started with some small roles on the, with the BBC on BBC's Winter Watch and Spring Watch mm-hmm. um, this year, um, which is looking at all sorts of UK wildlife. And my role was to control these remote cameras um, to capture any unique behavior, interesting behavior of these uh, UK wildlife that we can find. Um, and that also led to doing the next documentary in Malaysia, which was Wangkalian, the Forgotten Valley with Roots and Shoots Malaysia. And that was a whole nother project that we can talk about in a minute, but uh, I'll let you decide. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, we are going to talk about that. But I tell you what, Miles, let's just go for a very quick break. Uh, when we come back, let's find out more about what Finding Solo was all about and also the new one uh, on Wang Kalian. I'm speaking today to Miles Story. He's a wildlife filmmaker. We're talking about his work uh, and how wildlife filmmaking can actually be a very, very, very powerful tool for wildlife conservation. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today all the way from Bristol is Miles Story. He's a wildlife filmmaker. Miles has uh, worked on several different productions, but mainly uh, Finding Solo, which was a 30-minute documentary about the last white-handed gibbon in Bukit Serdang. He also recently completed the documentary Wang Kalian, The Forgotten Valley, uh, in collaboration with Roots and Shoots Malaysia. We're going to find out more about that. Um, Miles, you know, you, you were telling us before the break that you came back uh, as part of your course, actually, as part of your final uh, project, right, to to film uh, Finding Solo. I mean, when you decided to come back here and to focus on sort of like local uh, local issues, so Malaysian issues, right, uh, wildlife conservation issues, did you feel that there was a lack of information about, you know, our own local Malaysian wildlife, our landscape, even perhaps our conservation heroes? Definitely. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite sad to think, but... I think that is true. There's definitely a lack of information about our wildlife and um, nature. And when I was looking for stories, um, I knew that I wanted to do a story about Malaysia because that's that's my home. And I was looking online, trying to filter through stories, and there just isn't much information out there about our wildlife. And it's, it's a shame because we have such a diverse range of uh, wildlife and um, it's something that we should be able to, to to look up and know more about just by looking online. But unfortunately, there isn't. Mm. So I think that's why it's really important that we tell stories about wildlife through different mediums, through film, 
through articles, through radio, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, we are one of these 17 mega diverse countries in the world, right? I mean, it's crazy what we have here, right? Uh, and, and yeah, it was just, you know that phrase, you don't, you don't know it, you just don't love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the problem here. Um, okay, but let's talk about Finding Solo. So that was, um, you know, I, I mentioned very briefly what the premise is, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that story. Sure, yeah. So I first heard about Finding Solo from Peter Ong, who is a, a Malaysian wildlife photographer who's doing some great work um, and great advocacy for our Malaysian primates. And he actually discovered Solo by accident when he was in Bukit Serdang filming um, some owls. And he suddenly heard a gibbon calling mm. and was like, okay, that's, that's odd that there's a gibbon here. And then he spoke, got speaking to some of the the local people who hike there, hike the trails every day. And they said, oh, yes, there's there's, there's a big monkey with no tail. Um, and so he knew it was a gibbon. And from then he discovered that this gibbon's family had all passed away, unfortunately. And there had been about four or five of them living in that patch of forest before. Mm-hmm. And now there's only one left. So I thought that was a very, it's a very sad story, but it's also a very... It's quite a strong story because gibbons are visually um, very beautiful animals um, and they have a very haunting song, um, which I used quite a bit in the film. And you can hear Solo who's calling out for a mate. And normally what happens in a, in a family is that the, the parents will duet in the morning. So they'll sing, one will sing out and the other will sing out and they kind of call together. Mm-hmm. But to hear Solo just singing out by himself with no replies is is really heartbreaking. So I thought this is a story that needs to be told. You know, it's in Kuala Lumpur. It's literally in one of the biggest cities in Malaysia that everybody knows. And I guarantee so many people don't even know what a gibbon is. A lot of my friends that I was telling about the film did not even know what a gibbon was. So I had to show them pictures before before they understood. Oh so I think it was a really important story to tell, even though it was a it's a quite a sad one. Mm-hmm. And that is, and that was the important thing, right? That was how. It's quite a tragic story. And you know that it's not why... I mean, the question, of course, is why is Solo alone, right? So is it because of other issues such as uh, creeping urbanisation, right? Deforestation. I mean, are those also the topics that you sort of like cover in the documentary as well? Um, the documentary doesn't really cover sort of the the more scientific reasons okay. why this happened. I'm not... Because it's hard to say exactly how Bukit Serdang was formed. It's It's kind of encapsulated by a big highway and a lot of residential areas. Mm, mm-hmm, so whether mm-hmm. that family was always living there or whether the, the family of Gibbons moved there mm. um, is, is something that I'm not sure about. But I think it does highlight a, a bigger issue, which is habitat fragmentation. You know, everybody knows about habitat loss, but not many people know about when you lose a big area of forest and you're left with smaller patches of forest. Some people think, oh, that's okay. We have small patches of forest. They'll keep... A population healthy but that brings up all sorts of different issues like food scarcity and in this case um loss of uh, sort of genetic loss which means that solo the fam the solo's family that used to live there just had no other other gibbons to breed with yeah. so even if they were a healthy population even if they did have enough food that family would eventually die out you know yeah um so it's good to highlight that i think yeah 
And you wanted, mm-hmm. of course, to tell those stories, right? Because again, like you said, you know, happening right here in the city, perhaps, you know, a lot of us think of Gibbons as living in the jungles, right? Maybe in Pahang, for example, or, you know, but this one is right here uh, in KL. Then that, that, that's quite that's quite something, you know, to talk about, definitely. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually didn't believe that there was a gibbon in KL when <laughs> Peter first told me. I said, there's no way there's just a gibbon in a in a small forest in KL, yeah. you know, because even back in Sabah and Borneo, it's quite hard to find a gibbon. Mm. And here in one of the biggest cities in Southeast Asia, there's just uh, this family of gibbons. So I was very surprised, but yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, so that's why you wanted to tell, I guess, solo stories, right? And what that's kind of what inspired you to to want to make this film as well. Yes, exactly. Just to tell the that to tell people in Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia that these these wild animals are right at our doorstep, you know, even though we may not know it. Um, but they're here and they're being affected by everything that we do on a daily basis and all the development that's going on. Mm. So something that we should be keeping in mind whenever we're thinking about um how to use land and make decisions around that. Yeah, definitely. And Finding Solo, of course, you know, I mean, it came out a while ago, but, you know, uh, to great, I mean, I mean, it was very, very well received, right? Uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how uh, some of the reactions to the film. Yeah, I think it was it was really good. It, it uh, got selected for three different international uh, film festivals, which was great. It screened twice in America and once here in the UK and recently just won the, the Royal Television Television Society uh, Student Awards. Um, it won the Postgraduate um, Craft Skills Camera Work Award, which was, which is something I'm really proud of. And but I think my proudest moment of of this film was when I got to screen it in Kuala Lumpur, actually, and screen it to some people that live next to Bukit Serdang, who live around the area. Um, and I think that's that's where this story is most important for me. It's great that people outside can watch it, but I really want people in Malaysia to see what we have, you know, on our doorstep. And the plan is to to translate the film into Malay mm-hmm. um, and publish it in the next couple of months online, so that we can share it with more people in Malaysia. Okay, it must have been quite. I, I don't know. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It must have been quite heartbreaking filming this, uh, filming solo, isn't it? I mean, how was that whole experience for you? Yeah, it was It was definitely heartbreaking. Um, so it took us about about a month um, to, to get some usable footage of solo. So I would go into Bukit Serdang every other day. Um, and I think it was about the three-week mark when I actually got a shot of him so, you know, at the same time, when you're kind of filming a wild animal, there's a bit of this this thrill, you know, this rush of adrenaline when you see them and you're trying to, you know, rushing through the jungle. And in some sense, it was quite it was a fun, fun thing to shoot. You know, um, you, you didn't really feel in danger at, in any moments. Um, but I think, you know, the saddest thing was after I went home that day and got the shot that I needed and was really happy and was like, yes, I can tell this story. You know, something I realized as we were driving past the other direction going home, that solo is still there. He's still singing out. Even when this film gets told, he's still, you know, till this day, he's still there right now singing out for a partner that's, you know, that's not replying. So that's that was a sad reality for me, even though I was happy to to make the film. But um, the reality for solo is that he's still alone and there's, there's not much we can do about it now. But that is, you know, the power of wildlife and nature films, right, and documentaries, right? I mean, you can, 
you know, you make people think, you know, you, you can influence the way people think. I mean, what, what is it to you? What do you think the power of uh, wildlife uh, films and documentaries are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It has the power to sort of reach people a little bit deeper beyond surface level. You know, um, I think you can tell people the facts about extinction, how many we have left in the wild, and that just that just doesn't resonate with people on on another level. And I think, you know, the universal language of humans is through stories mm -hmm. and storytelling. So if you can tell a story about an individual character or a few characters um, and what they're going through, and you show that visually and and quite emotionally, then you can really reach people. And that's really what I've been trying to do with Finding Solo. You know, unfortunately, it's not a happy story. There's not a happy ending. Um, but if it reaches people and gets them to care and know a little bit more about Gibbons and hopefully sticks with them, you know, for a long time, then that'll be, then that's the, the job done for the film, you know. Yeah. Well, we look forward to the the Malaysia, uh, Malay translation, right? Uh, the Malay language yes. uh, version of that. So that should be coming out mm -hmm. soon. Um, but also yes. in the meantime, you you were the wildlife videographer and director for the documentary Wankalian, The Forgotten Valley. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. That was a that was a very different kind of film. That was um, a bit more uh, upbeat, and it was sort of celebrating the biodiversity in in this small village in the smallest state in Malaysia, the most northern state in Malaysia, called Wangkalian, which is um, literally on the border of Malaysia and Thailand. So it's in and Perlis, right? Was, yes, in Perlis. Yeah. And this was a project that was. Um, uh, led by Peter Ong and T.P. Lim from Roots and Shoots Malaysia. And their whole goal with this project was to sort of boost ecotourism in the area and e economically incentivize the local people to sort of protect that area. And I think, yeah, that was the whole goal of the project. Okay. And the film was part of, a, part of that project. And it was a 30-minute film to celebrate the biodiversity, the the extreme terrain and also the people and the culture in that area. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a broad topic to fit all that, you know, the, <laughs> the people, the culture, the history, the wildlife in 30 minutes. But um, we managed to do, do it by finding some interesting characters who could talk to us about their experiences and share that in the film. And I, I'm very curious, you know, because I was reading, you know, you you went there without any sort of storyline, any sort of script, I guess, you know, you just went there with a blank slate. Um, what what are some of the discoveries that you made? Yes. Um, yeah, that's something I would not advise actually going in uh, <laughs> blind like that. But sure. it was something that we, I mean, there was no other choice really, because I was here in the UK and as much information as you can get online, um, there's, there's just not enough to actually, you know, develop a narrative, a story for a documentary. So you really have to be there in person. You have to be talking to the people before you can actually find something that sparks an interest um, that you can use to sort of craft the story. Um, so, yeah, the story was always changing, you know, throughout every day we'd go out and shoot and we were like, actually, that's kind of interesting. Maybe we'll focus a bit more on that or the story can go in this direction. But we were quite lucky because we had the... The, the person who was guiding us through the forests of Perlis, um, Shamil, um, he was actually quite um, quite an interesting character. And he he was sort of the, the expert on the Burukentoi, which is the stumptail macaque, which is, um, you know, the only place that you can find these macaques in Malaysia is 
in Wankalian, mm. in in Perlis. So he he ended up becoming a character in the film because uh, you know he was full of knowledge. He knew almost you know everything where we were going, different caves and stuff like that. And through him, we managed to meet a lot more other people. You know, we interviewed about ten different people, um, but unfortunately, you know, you can't fit all these interviews in a thirty minute video. So we had to find when somebody says something interesting that we can sort of follow. If there's a trail that we can follow, you know, after they mention something interesting, then that's kind of how we develop the narrative. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of, I, I have must confess, you know, uh, when you say Wang Kalian, I think a lot of Malaysians immediately think about the uh, the horrific human trafficking that went on there, right? So it's, it's you know, it's nice to have a different sort of uh, image when you think of Wang Kalian now. Anything that you thought, you know, was really, really fascinating, uh, you know, for Malaysians and, you know, why we should definitely go and visit uh, Wang Kalian as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's something that we were trying to stray away from was was that incident, even though it'd be really interesting to talk about that to the local people and get that perspective. But I think that's a documentary for another time. Mm. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, for me, the main thing that blew my breath away was the amazing landscape. It's like nothing that I've seen really in Malaysia. It's because Wan Kalian is this small village kind of in this valley. Mm. So it's surrounded by these big limestone hills all around. And you kind of have to take this little windy road um, to get to this small village. Um, but it's not just Wan Kalian itself. It's the surrounding areas. It's full of forests. Um, there's a, another little town next to Wan Kalian called Kaki Bukit, which is, which is a Chinese town and has a lot of great food, um, great caving experiences. And we also featured that in the film as well. Nice. Um, but for me, if you're, a, if you're a nature lover or you just want to get away from the city and go somewhere, you know, quiet and peaceful, then Wankalian is the place to be. Because I don't think many people in Malaysia know about it. So there were times when we were filming in the Perlis State Park and they have these, you know, huge watchtowers which you can come up um, on amazing trails. And there was just nobody around. So I think that was an amazing experience. You know, normally these these places have a lot of tourists walking around, but it was quite quite special because nobody was around. You were literally just with the wildlife in that moment. Um, and also you have to see the the Burukentoi, the stumptail macaques for me were really, they're quite interesting. I don't know if you've seen a picture, but they have really red faces and they have really like orange furry bodies which is almost unlike a lot of wildlife in Malaysia. You know, they must be quite hot with that thick layer of fur. Um, But they always travel in troops of like between anywhere between like 30 and and 100. And I think there's a couple of troops in in Wankalian that you can see. So for me, that was really cool as, as somebody who enjoys and likes to watch primates. Yeah, definitely on the list to to go and visit there next. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and the thing about you know a lot of nature documentaries or um, yeah, like you know when you watch anything, even the David Attenborough sort of films, right? A lot of it comes off as being maybe sad, maybe a little bit terrifying, you know, even a bit depressing, right? For you as a filmmaker, how do you try to sort of like infuse hope as well uh, into the work that you that you produce? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot as well, especially with Finding Solo being quite a sad story mm. um, with not not much not much of a hopeful ending. You know, I've, time and time again, when I was editing that film, I was like, how can I put, an, put a hopeful spin on this story? And how can I, you know, not pay, make people feel too depressed? But, you know, at the end of the day, Solo's story is a really sad story and there's not much that we can do about it. 
Um, and for a short story, I think people, I think so something being very sad sometimes can have a powerful impact on people. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I was trying to do with finding solo. And hopefully if it reaches the right people, um, maybe something will be done about solo situation or things will be, you know, slightly changed in, in future situations. Um, but for, for Wang Kalyan, which is a slightly longer documentary, I think it's really important that you have these hopeful bits and, you know, inside and also at the same time, some, some sadness. I think you always want to, I think to get people to care, you want them to be, you know, to care for something, they have to be quite sad and attached to it. And at the same time, you want to sort of end on something very hopeful. So in Wang Kalyan, the Forgotten Valley, we really wanted to emphasize the future generation. Um, also the good work that the current generation is doing, but also um, the hope that their children and their kids will follow in their footsteps. So two of our main characters had very young children that they were trying to um, to, to, to get involved in their, their sort of wildlife activities. And that was the hopeful spin that we put on, on that documentary. But I think, I think it really is important because so, so much news that we see these days about wildlife is all extinction and things dying. Yeah. And yeah, I think we need, we need, we need some hope in this world. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, what are we fighting for, right? If there's no hope, yeah. right? Um, and, and just on that topic of um, filmmaking, right? I mean, there are, of course, some contentious issues, right? In relation to wildlife filmmaking, I guess, you know, uh, to do particularly with respect that filmmakers show towards the animals, towards nature, you know, the places that they film in, right? How do you sort of navigate those things? You know, do you have a code of conduct that you abide by when you are working in the field? Mm -hmm. um yes there's, there's there's a famous saying that i always used to see on tv when you see the behind the scenes of wildlife filmmakers and that's to never interfere with nature so whatever's going on you you're just a passive bystander and you observe and film and you don't get involved mm. and that's something that's a conduct that i that i follow um and at the same time i also understand that we humans are a part of nature um, so when we say never interfere with nature, we, we kind of forget that we are actually part of nature as well. So I want people, people to remember that, you know, we're not separate from nature. Um, at the same time, for example, when filming uh, solo, you know, one thing I was always thinking about is to never put um, Solo's life at risk or put him in any sort of situation where he's in danger or other people around me are in danger or myself even mm. um, just to get, you know, get the shot. I think that's, that goes beyond what we should be doing as wildlife filmmakers. And something that we do before we go out filming is we have to do a proper thorough risk assessment. So really helpful when doing wildlife films because we're filming in such remote um, sort of sometimes dangerous locations you have to sort of list out all the possibilities of what could go wrong. Mm. Even things that may seem silly, like, you know, slipping over a banana peel in the middle of the forest. What do you do in that situation? I think you have to list all those down and then at the same time, think about how you'd mitigate all those risks. And I think that's really important because when you're out there in the wild, anything could go wrong. Mm -hmm. And we've heard stories of things going wrong before. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, I guess in just uh, just before we kind of conclude, Miles, I just want to know, um, you know, in, in, in all the work that you've been doing, and you've been doing a lot of like uh, projects uh, throughout, right? What would you say are some of the hardest things or the most difficult situations uh, that you've experienced while actually filming? 
I think one thing that surprised me if sort of before I started was how heavy equipment can be <laughs> carrying that through the jungle. Yep. Like the forest itself is not a place that's comfortable, you know, and especially if there's no trails and you're having to sort of make your own trails and carrying equipment at the same time, it's, it's quite taxing on the body. Um, but I think one of the, one of the most interesting times that I've been in um, more challenging situations was when I was in Wankalian actually um, crawling through one of the caves. Mm. So Wankalian has, has, I think, hundreds of different limestone caves. And we went trying to look for, you know, any wildlife that we could find in the caves. And we were sort of crawling through these spaces that were barely big enough to fit our shoulders and with a camera, heavy camera oh. at the same time, trying to not get the camera dirty or, or you know, scratched. Um, and there was one point where we were crawling and the, the, the cave was getting so narrow that we had to sort of dig the sand beneath beneath us just to make more room so that we could pass through. Oh, and unfortunately, I couldn't help but thinking of the unfortunate um, Thailand incident that happened um, a few years ago where the, where the schoolboys were stuck in a cave. And... Um, luckily we didn't get stuck and we managed to get out okay but when you're in such tight situations with camera equipment and there were snakes in that cave you know different kinds of um, frogs and fish and all sorts of weird wildlife um, one interesting thing that we saw was actually a cave a porcupine which I didn't think lived in caves but we found a porcupine in a cave and that was that was an interesting one in that same expedition that's um, putting so, yeah, it mildly. But, yes, <laughs> exactly. Occupied in but, a narrow space. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's all part of the fun. You know, it's kind of a lot of people who get into this into this line of work really enjoy that that sort of lifestyle and putting themselves in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, and it is fun, but at the same time, we always have to be respectful of nature and always keep us and our crew safe. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, definitely fun. Okay. And and I mean, I, that was actually my, my next question, you know, a, a favourite memory, perhaps, you know, a, a favourite experience from uh, filming a wild animal or just, I guess, you know, simply filming in the wild. Ooh. It would probably be that that caving experience, I would have to say. Okay. Um, but I can think of, I can try to think of another one. I think probably seeing Capturing Solo for the first time, mm. I think I almost teared up when I saw that because... I'd been sort of chasing this this gibbon throughout the forest for a few a few weeks, you know. Mm. And at one point, I finally um, I just followed his, you know, heard him singing, followed him alone, and then he was there just drinking drinking water out of a tree. And he'd stayed put for the longest time I'd ever seen him stay put. I think it was like a few minutes of him just drinking, and we sort of I don't know we sort of made eye contact. He probably was looking at me like who's this guy and what's he doing? Is he a threat? You know, but for me, just looking at another primate in the eye, I think there's something special about that. And I think you realize how close these animals are to us. You know, they really are um, very human-like and I'm sure they feel a lot of the same emotions that we have. And I think I was quite emotional in that moment. And that probably has to go down as one of my favorite uh, filming experiences. Oh, that's a lovely memory. And yeah, making that connection, right? Feeling, yeah, like you say, we're not that far apart, actually. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, definitely. 
Well, Miles, you know, um, so two documentaries out already. Um, and I do understand that um, uh, for the Wang Kalian one, there's going to be some screenings uh, come August. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. Um, Wang Kalian and Finding Solo, and will, Finding Solo. Okay. Um, will be airing on Astro, I believe, in the month of August for, I think Astro has a sort of a Medeca. Um, they, they have a channel where they showcase different Malaysian filmmakers Okay. and filmed and that will be aired on that channel okay. in August. Lovely. Yeah. And is there any other way that we can uh, that we can uh, watch the films or, or, or are they available online? Um, both films are currently not online, but they will be, especially after August. Okay. Um, once that airs on Astro and then those films will be released online for everyone to see uh, free of charge. Okay. And that's the important thing. We want people in Malaysia especially to be watching these films um, to know what we have, you know, in our backyard. Definitely. Miles, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And I'm sure that you've got uh, lots in the pipeline. Uh, any any plans that you'd like to share with us? Um, the latest film that um, I filmed was actually about an indigenous village, a uh, semi mm. village in, in Pahang. Yeah. And that's something I'm really excited about. That's a more human story, but it's more about how humans can live, you know, side by side with nature and how these people are really connected to the rainforest and to the river. Mm. And I think that's a very special connection that I want more people to, to know about. So that's currently in the works. That's being edited right now. And hopefully we'll have that out in the next couple of months. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to to just continue to tell more stories about small places like Wankalian in Malaysia that have so much potential and so much um, interesting wildlife that, you know, people just don't know about, you know, I want people in Malaysia to know what we have so that we can hopefully care more about these animals and protect them. Mm -hmm. Definitely, Miles. And I guess, you know, what do you think is the future of uh, wildlife filmmaking, right? You know, how do you think the industry can actually better serve uh, not just the planet, but also the public? Mm, that's a very good, that's a very good question, actually. Um, I think, yeah, because the current sort of model of wildlife filmmaking is quite it's quite expensive and it takes many years to do these big productions that we see on television sometimes are three to five years in the making, you know, millions of dollars, um, hundreds of crew being flown all, all over the place, which is all, not always sustainable. But I think there's a huge push right now in the industry to make, make sure that the films that we're making are more sustainable, which means hiring more local crew, not filming and shipping out equipment and people all the time. And I also think there's a push to be, you know, to prioritize a digital audience because um, I think broadcast is is not as popular as it used to be. And a lot more young people are on their phones rather than watching TV. Mm. So I think short form content in wildlife filmmaking is going to become a lot more popular. And hopefully that means that it's more accessible so that, you know, more people can be making these kinds of content instead of just a few big production companies, you know, in the UK that are making all these films, you know, people back home in Malaysia with a handphone who live next to the forest can be making content about wildlife, showcasing what they have and what we have yeah. and yeah, telling the stories that that should be told. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of hope. I mean, I think uh, even in some of the conversations I've had, um, some Orang Asli girls have banded together and they are also, you know, just using their phones and, and filming their day-to-day -day life. Uh, you know, no no production company, nothing, just independent films, you know, to get people to know more about it, right? So it's it's happening. Yeah, yeah you're right. Exactly. And sometimes yeah. that's more interesting. It's more interesting to see it firsthand 
you know, unedited, you know, unfiltered, just how people live their lives. And I think, I think, yeah, media is changing. So hopefully that means more people who live in these places can tell their own stories. Yeah. So that's what I'm excited about as well. Yeah. Well, Miles, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing. And, you know, for anyone who's listening, uh, how can they uh, keep updated with the work that you're doing? Uh, do you have any social media channels that they can follow? Um, yeah, I think the the easiest way to, to keep in contact is through Instagram. It's just Miles P Story um, on Instagram. And that's kind of where I publish my work. And if it's any sort of longer form things, there'll be a link to YouTube or anything like that. Okay. But, so yeah. All right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Miles, well, you know, good luck uh, for everything. And I hope uh, I hope to catch up with you when the uh, your documentary on the Semi-Tribe comes out. So we'll be in touch. Um, yeah. But again, you know, if anyone's interested, just uh, follow Miles on Instagram. That's Miles, M-Y-L-E-S-P-S-T-O-R-E-Y uh, at Instagram. Yeah. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.